Welcome to Season 4 of The Agile Brand with Greg Kilstrom, where we discuss business agility through customer experience, employee experience, and digital transformation. I'm your host, Greg Kilstrom. The Agile World Podcast is brought to you by Tech Systems, an industry leader in full-stack technology services, talent services, and real-world application. For more information, go to techsystems.com. To read more about the topics discussed on this show, you can go to my website at gregkilstrom.com and read my latest articles or get a copy of my latest book, Meaningful Measurement of the Customer Experience, now available on Amazon and other retailers. My name is Greg Kilstrom, and I'm the host of the Agile Brand Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about combining technology and design psychology to drive business success. To help me discuss this topic, I'd like to welcome Thomas Watkins, principal and founder of Three Leaf, a design collective using applied psychology and data to enhance the design of products. Thomas, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, looking forward to talking about this subject with you. Um, But first, why don't we start by you giving a little background on yourself as well as what you're currently doing at Three Leaf. Yeah, sure. So my background was in psychology and, um, you know, spent a long time in graduate school studying people in uh, experiments, putting people through tasks. Uh, you know, you design an experiment, people are supposed to do tests and, um, you know, respond to stimuli on screens and things like that. And you analyze it. Um, after I left that, I went into UX and, um, had a career, uh, you know, around, you know, 14 or so years so far as a UX designer. Um, and what I, my approach and my team's approach at Three Leaf is we bring, we make sure that kind of design psychology is the core of everything we do with, with UX. And um, I was fortunate enough to get um, early, early on uh, uh, education in uh, human factors. Human factors was, you know, kind of one of the original names for UX before the term came around in 2010. Um, And so uh, I think with that being the core and, and for UX folks to think of things and approach things psychologically, is enormously beneficial. Um, and so at, at Three Leaf, uh, we're consultancy, work primarily with early stage te- technology companies or established companies who are doing um, uh, digital transformations. We find that with like going into these new projects where you're kind of constantly, you know, starting from zero very often and figuring it all out and getting to something where it's a solution that everybody can be proud of. I find that having psychology and design psychology specifically as a core to that extremely uh you know beneficial as as a tool to have in um in one's toolkit for guiding the process yeah yeah. well let's uh let's get started here and start by talking about uh what you do so you know combining technology and design psychology to drive business success so before we start you you touched on this in your intro but just you know for those a little less familiar can you define what you mean by design psychology yes so um think of it as uh you know you've got all the different types of psychology right you've got clinical psychology where you're working with the mentally ill or you've got school psychology where you're working with pupils in school and how do they adjust um, you've got social psychology. How do people react uh, in social situations? All these things. Design psychology means that we're taking what we know about human beings, how we operate, and we're applying it to the design of things. Right. So there's a whole process that you know uh, through your through your senses, 
when information comes in through the perception of how that's the first step of that processing, all the way to your cognition and your thinking, and then all the way out to your behavior. There's a whole process of, of um, understanding humans that when you know about it, you're able to engineer for it. One analogy I give is ergonomics. So when you think of like ergonomics, I give this example, like ergonomic scissors, the grip for the fingers, it assumes that you have fingers and you're holding it with that. Uh, ergonomic chair takes into account the nature of your back and where pressure needs to be. When we design technology solutions for people, we can take into account how do people perceive things? How do people uh, remember and forget things? How much can people retain in their heads? Um, and, you know, and where do people look on a screen? right uh through you know eye tracking research and you can take that knowledge and use it to help you engineer better solutions so that you, what you're doing can resonate more with people um the low bar is you want it to be usable um the higher bar is you want it to be a delightful user experience when you're designing things yeah yeah so are there points of friction between technology which I, you know, in my experience is often based on um, you don't want to over-engineer things and there's sort of a conservation of, of efforts, so to speak, in things and and design psychology, which is, you know, this this human-centered approach. So, you know, what yeah. what are some areas where those two things conflict? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is a really good point. And, and since this, uh, uh, this show dealing with Agile, that is relevant, right, to... Because um, we have the kind of the business pragmatic technology interest. Are you kind of talking about that where you have um, yeah. just different constraints when you're building? Yeah. So when you're building technology, of course, you have the different constraints, time, money, effort that goes into things. And then you have on the flip side, you know, what's this great uh, thing that you want to be able to design? Right. And all designers in their career, um, particularly a lot of the, I guess, the ones that come out of academia, that people go into UX from different angles. You can kind of come out of the behavioral science. You can come out through um, uh, the art, the world of art. And however you come into UX, you're bringing in this um, academic philosophical tradition with you. And with that comes a set of values about how things should be. And oftentimes there's a certain level of rigor in the expectations of the designer in terms of how much you have to put in in order to make it uh, a desirable solution. On the flip side, we're operating in the business world and there's not infinite money and there's not infinite time. So you have to, you have to balance that out. And so um, the, I think the points of friction are finding those balances between, you know, look, we want the solution to be good, but it has to at least exist, right? It's not helping anybody if, if it doesn't get into the release at all. And so um, I think that there's this kind of over the past, I would, you know, as long as Agile's been around, I've gone to conferences and seen where people give talks and they say like, okay, how do we do our work as designers yet operate within this, the heavy constraints of the sprints and the, you know, the two week cycles and so forth. And then out of that, you have like kind of uh, creative things that folks come up with like design sprints and, you know, working within that. But I think that that is one of the biggest constraints is learning how to operate and getting the best you can get for now and into the product. One of the big things for designers and people on the product side to 
to kind of um, know is that uh, it's the crawl, walk, run yeah. uh, method, right? If you improve things now and you improve it a certain percentage and you make people's lives easier, that really is a victory and you don't need to get to the whole giant, huge thing that you really want. You can, you can accept other levels of, of improvement. Yeah, yeah. And I think that for those of us that are used to working in an agile world, it it's uh, it it might come naturally. I think for for some, it it may not quite you know come as as naturally. But it all kind of involves prioritization, right? So, can you talk right. a little bit about you know every every situation? I would imagine is different, and and there's different constraints and different requirements and all that. But you know, how do you look at prioritizing? You know, when it comes down to you know prioritizing technology and or engineering versus technology, you know, versus prioritizing design and, and the user, Mm -hmm. like how should, how should you think about that? So the way um, I kind of approach that is that you need the, in terms of the pillars of the folks involved with the the product team, you've got the strategy kind of representative, right? That's going to be the product owner. You're going to have the designer who, comes to that meetings where the uh, requirements are disseminated. And um, hopefully you probably have a technical architect in that meeting. And there might be other stakeholders, but I kind of look at it as almost like, um, almost like parties, of, like, a, like a party system where you've yeah. got these advocates that, you know, so you've got like the business party, the user party, and then kind of like the technology yeah. party. And, um, and I think that the best case scenario that I've seen is you want those three or so different parties you could throw in their marketing perhaps but those kind of like main three parties to be roughly mostly equally powerful and um you know a lot of times that's on a professional to learn how to represent their ideas how to assert themselves properly in a in a in those kinds of um scenarios but you want to make sure that that there's some kind of a proper balance because I think we've probably all seen scenarios where there's like one uh, uh, kind of side that outweighs the other. We might be like a a super strong marketing team or sales team at a company. And has like this really overbearing effect. And then that's where you get like this, this imbalance there. But um, you know, as designers, we really look to the strategy vertical to really provide that uh, prioritization and our role in the prioritization I see is to try to make sure it's as informed as possible. So are there areas of user research that we could be doing to help be the tiebreaker when there's you know uh, a debate on the table of should we go in this direction or that direction or should we choose to build this feature first or that one? Um, there are things that on the UX side, research and design that we can do to help facilitate that process. But um, yeah, I think, I think of it, um, I like this term, it's called a team of rivals mm, where yeah. you have like a, a innately um, ri- rivalrous kind of relationship between them, but you know how to be like a team. And a lot of times you get the best synergy out of those situations, right? You get a lot of good quality that's well-balanced coming out of the, the, those situations. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it makes ever it makes the work better, right? It's uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there are dysfunctional teams that disagree with each other, of course, but that's not what you're talking about at all. Right. I, I think that right. it's like, 
you know, a lawyer once explained it to me as well, where, you know, that that's how the legal, when it, the legal system works well, it works well because everyone is making the best possible argument. And someone, Correct. even with a, even with a, you know, the, their case isn't as, um, as good necessarily, but they make the best possible argument. It makes the winning, it makes the winning team even better. Right. And so, I, you know, I think, I think that's what you're talking about here. And it's, exactly. um, it's, it's, it's interesting to, to hear you explain it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and some of the really pragmatic considerations for businesses doing this is that you want to give, you know, in this case, design their own vertical. It, it, this might be hard for some companies, right? They might not be used to that. They might be, um, I, I find some companies are concerned that the designers will have like too much agency and kind of like yeah. run off into like <laughs> into a certain kind of direction, right? Um, and then, but what you really, you're really doing yourself a favor if you, if you give each segment their own vertical and their kind of reporting structure. Because one mistake I've seen made is if you take like all of the designers and you shove them under marketing, there might be situations right. where that could possibly work, but, um, I haven't really witnessed it. And, you know, a lot of times you don't get, you know, or, or design completely under engineering that can work if the engineering team really understands and appreciates design they might internally be able to represent those needs well i have seen that um happen but what you really want to move toward is having those verticals having their um their own kind of column in their own you know system of incentives their own operations their own um, way of running things and being able to represent those interests because when you have the stakeholders coming at those seats at the table you want them to honestly represent that um, that opinion or that viewpoint um, to get, like you said, kind of the better product in the end. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Well, let's uh, let's f- switch gears here a little bit and talk about another topic, which is visualizing data for optimal yes. communication. Yeah, um, this is something I feel very passionately about, and um, it, but I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts. You know, just why why is visualizing data so important when you're trying to communicate with other teams? Yeah. So the first reason is that data by itself is not um, it's not intuitive. And what I mean by that is, if you just show somebody tables, they have to um, discern things for themselves. And so the whole purpose of data visualization is that we're putting it in a form where we can more easily and pre-attentively gain insights from the data. You can look at it and you can see instantly some, some things about the nature of that data, right? And so, um, and so and it is why statisticians came up with these ways of plotting lines and dots and squares and things like that onto a sheet, because those are things that we can look at. They're objects and we can kind of look at them and see natural relationships with them perceptually. And they represent things about the data that we care about, but, you know, quantities and, and uh, how tightly things cluster, how far away and where are things located. And so um, the important thing is allowing people to gain insights from the data. The data is important and every job role has data that's important to them. So the key is that you want to take this massively important data that you're collecting we're collecting more and more of it because we have the technology to be able to. 
And you want to be able to put that in a form where people can easily, where it can support people and empower people to make decisions that they need to make daily based upon that data. So the visualization becomes very important because we're naturally wired to be able to perceive most of our world visually and to be able to gain insights through that through that mode, that um, uh, that channel. And so, um, yeah, data visualization is important, I think, for those reasons. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I would I would expand it even to say, you know, I, I, in my in my life as a consultant and and previously, you know, I, I write a lot of documents and there's a lot of words on those documents. And yet, you know, what I found and, and found most recently is turning turning a like three paragraphs of text into a flow chart, yeah. a diagram, even if it's, I mean, I, I have a design background and, and stuff like that, but I don't look at it as a design exercise. I look at it right. as a, you know what, if I give someone a three page document, there's no way they're going to read this. Right. Um, why don't I turn this into something where, you know, they may even have questions about it, but once they get those questions answered, it's going to, it's going to immediately click versus, Oh, we'll look at paragraph eight on page two or, or stuff like that. And, you know, that's different than, than what you were just talking about as far as visualizing data, but it's not, it's not so different to me. And I I think just in general, there is, there's this reluctance, I guess, from people who they say, you know, I'm not a designer, I'm not creative. I can't make infographics. I can't draw, you know, whatever that is, you know, what advice would you have to those people that kind of have that barrier to visualizing things? Yeah, I mean, I, I my advice to them would be, you know, you can keep it small. I, I think, uh, I, remember that the whole purpose is communication, I would tell folks. Yeah. Um, you know, I in, in my uh, data viz classes, I always make this distinction between data visualization and uh, data art, right? And yeah, yeah. Uh, with the argument that, too many folks are trying to do data art, right? Where they're trying to take the data and then express themselves with it or come up with some interest, you know, inspiring yeah. visualization based upon it, where the main purpose really should be communication. You know, make, you want it to look good, that's fine. But, you know, um, you want to communicate. So then, so you think to yourself, if you're presenting data where there's already data and you already know what the point is, know what that point is and what point are you trying to get across. If you're doing a report, and the recipient of that report, you want them to be able to see something with their own eyes. Because I think you're 100% right. If you have three paragraphs kind of describing a problem versus you could say, look, here are the three sales channels or here are the departments. Here's how they compare or here's what happened over the past six months. Being able to see those dots or, or plots, you know, just seeing that there really helps them to see, you know, the user to say like, okay, or the consumer to say, okay, I'm looking at the situation. Now I can see the description of it. Um, But I think that folks can start simple. They don't need to be the greatest, you know, some great artist or anything like that. Just take one point, go to the data, kind of make sure you're doing it right. If you're not that familiar with data, maybe consult the data science department at your organization or something like that. But um, I think keep it simple. A little can go a long way. Just a, a little visual of just a comparison of just a bar chart or a line dot. You don't have to be fancy. Here's another thing I like to point out too. Don't feel like the, 
visualization has to be the most entertaining thing in the world, you would be surprised how much people care about the visualization when it's data that matters to them. Mm. One of the examples that I give is like, um, if you woke up one morning and you uh, checked your bank account and you found that it's an account, this account now has a million dollars in it, then uh, it doesn't normally, you don't need the words to be dancing on the screen for you to be excited about that because that's as a number that's meaningful to, to you you know what it means so um i think knowing the stuff that really matters to people and to isolate your data down to the point and don't think of it in a data set centric way don't start with the data set and say like okay i'm gonna make a I'm going to plug this into, you know, Excel or whatever, and I'll make a visualization. No, make it revolve around a point that you actually want to make and then make a graph of that. And that, that's going to be a way that you can kind of get over that hump, I think, of being able to see the value in, in a data visualization that you've made. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think that's great advice. Well, um, one last question before we wrap up here, kind of going back to the, the first topic we were talking about. Um, for those product designers out there, uh, you know, trying to balance the what we were talking about earlier, technology, design, psychology, you know, what, what's some advice you would have for them and uh, as they navigate the months ahead? Um, so, uh, so in terms of designers, if you're on a product team, um, I would say that sometimes, you know, if, if you're trying to achieve something more with the product, and there's a lot of constraints that are maybe getting in the way. One thing that I find works for a lot of folks is consider doing kind of a dual track system, right? Where you are designing on one side what you think the product should be. And the other track is where you're just keeping developers unblocked. And this is takes a lot of time because it a little bit, in some ways, doubles your effort or the amount of stuff that you need to do at work. But um, sometimes folks get a little bit jaded if they want to, they want their product to be a certain way, or they want things to go into a certain direction, but maybe people aren't receptive to it, or you don't have enough buy-in, um, continue to bake those ideas and continue to develop those anyway, while providing the day-to-day -day needs. And what you could find is that at some point you can make a pitch in the future, or you know, kind of show it to the right people that you know uh, uh, get the right eyeballs on it. And you might not get your dream necessarily, but you might be able to have an impact and add value in a way that you didn't expect by doing that. And, you know, separating those two things out rather than becoming jaded about, you know, folks not listening. And um, uh, that can be a helpful way of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Well, Thomas, thanks so much for joining the show. Yeah. For those listening, uh, what's the best way for them to keep up with what you're doing? I guess find me on LinkedIn, Thomas Watkins, and also on my website, 3Leaf, the number 3, leaf.consulting. You can also find me there. Wonderful. Well, again, I'd like to thank Thomas Watkins, principal and founder of 3Leaf, for joining the show. Thanks for listening to The Agile Brand with Greg Kilstrom. Talk with you next week. Thanks again for listening to The Agile Brand with Greg Kilstrom podcast, brought to you by Tech Systems. If you enjoyed the show, please take a minute to subscribe on your podcast channel of choice and leave us a rating so that others can find the show more easily. You can access more episodes of the show at www.theagilebrand.show. To get a copy of my latest book, Meaningful Measurement of the Customer Experience, visit my website at gregkillstrom.com. Until next week, stay agile.